0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Uncensored CMO. Now, in this episode, I am talking to one of the titans of our industry, someone who I think has had a bigger impact on our industry than perhaps anybody else. He is Sir Martin Sorrell, founder and owner of WPP, the biggest holding company in the world. He has since gone on to set up S4 Capital, so now finds himself in the challenger position rather than the dominant player. I wanted to talk to Sir Martin about what he sees as the biggest challenges facing our industry today. What are the disruptions coming down the line that are going to affect and shape our industry in the future? What's his advice to CMOs? What do CMOs need to care about and what should they be doing? What skills do they need to deal with the challenges coming at them in the world today? And because it's CAN, I wanted to ask him about AI, of course. Um, and in fact, just to do that, I asked ChatGPT to give me some questions about AI to Sir Martin. I um, also want to find out a little bit more about him as a person, his background and what motivates him, and why is he still going, having had the success he has. Here's my conversation with Sir Martin Sorrell. Listen, I thought, I, if it's OK, obviously, you know, you're reasonably well known, I think it's fair to say. A little um, bit. But I'd love to start at the beginning. In my own okay. mind. In your own mind, mind. Yes. Indeed. Take us back to uh, when you were growing up, what what did you want to be?
1: I wanted to open the Batting for England. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) Nobody understands what that means. I was very... um, Leonard Hutton was my sort of um, idol, I think. He was a York, England captain. Sir Leonard Hutton, actually. So I probably wanted to open the Batting for England was probably the answer to that. Brilliant. Um, I got into advertising by accident, really, because my dad said... uh, you know what you should do is you should find an industry you enjoy, find a company in it within it that you enjoy, and have fun with, and then build a reputation. Not a reputation, you know, to do podcasts with you and you know, it can, but you know, just to in the area in which you operated. And then if you fancied doing something on your own, and the magical age was forty, actually, because you know forty was the age when uh, you'd done your first twenty years. Yeah. And you had your other... Because people used to retire at 60. They didn't carry on, carry on like I've done. But so, so you, should, you know, build a reputation. If you fancy doing something on your own when you're around 40, go ahead and do it. So that was um, it. And I, I sort of fell into it because uh, I was working for James Gulliver, um, who was a very successful food retailing entrepreneur. He sold fine fare to RCA Corporation. Don't ask me how... A retail food operations ends up inside RCA Corporation, but it did. And James had a fair bit of money, and uh, he hired me as his personal financial counselor, which actually wasn't an accurate description. I was really his gopher. I used to yes. carry his bag. And we invested in um, a number of things. We invested in Tavner Rutledge, which was a sweet manufacturer up in Manchester, Sayers Confectioners, which was a bakery also up in, in the north in um, Alpine Double Glazing. Oh, um, right. uh, with, you know, these were all sort of small public companies which had, had done pretty well or, or were, were stagnating anything. And then the other thing was Garland Compton. And Garland Compton was run by a man called Ken Gill and it had gone public. So it was um, Garland, the Garland Agency in London plus Compton in America that had a stake in it. And Ken Gill was worried about the creative reputation of uh, Garland Compton. You know, he had Proctor as its biggest client, yeah. Jane, and I think Eli Lilly and some others. And he said to James, a good friend of James Gulliver, uh, said, "You know, who, I'm thinking about goosing up the uh, creative reputation, and I've got you know these Saatchi brothers." And and what Morris and Charles did was effectively reverse. They, they did a reverse takeover of Garland Compton, which had gone public. Mm-hmm. And James was consulting for them, and I ended up being the sort of consultant. So I used to go into Charlotte Street uh, one day a week. I had an office in Charlotte Street, not on the top floor where Morris and Charles were, but I think it was on the second or third floor. And I used to do consulting for them for about you know half a day a week, a day a week. And then Morris wanted to hire a CFO. And um, the the consultants were with a firm called Goddard, Kay and Rogers, and the consultant was called Brian Burwash. I mean, it was all very funny stuff, actually. And Morris said to Brian one day, because they, they had difficulty finding a CFO for, for Garland Compton as a listed company. The, the guy who was, who was running, it was you know, past 11 o'clock in the morning, was somewhat a sort of non-compost mentis. And they went looking in Fleet Street for a CFO. Most of the CFOs were non yes. compos mentis yeah. after 11 o'clock, if you get my drift. Yes. And uh, Morris said to Brian, you know, uh, well, Brian said to Morris, what, what sort of person do you want? What, somebody like Martin. So, have you asked Martin? Mm. No. So, Brian asked me, and that was it. Wow. So, that was how I got it. I, I sort of fell into it. And, Morris, I liked. And, Charles, I liked. And the atmosphere was very Tim Bell was there, Jeremy Sinclair, Bill Muirhead. I mean, all, all of whom have survived mm. to this very day. And it was an exciting place to be. Nothing was impossible. Yeah. Except if you got public recognition for it. No. So the, it's very funny actually because um, Morris would say to me, or say to everybody, um, you know, Procter and Gamble never have you know uh, an individual; it's always Pro- Procter and Gamble, both yeah. of whom were dead. Um, and you know, sergeant and such, you'd be the same. I said, well, Morris, but the slight difference, you know, you're alive, Charlie's alive, and it's such. So you could do anything you liked as long as you didn't get any public recognition yes. for it. And, and Tim. You know, Tim was a. You know, often people referred to me as a third brother, or Tim as a third brother. Tim was really the third brother. Sadly, died a few years ago. And but you know, Tim fell into that trap with the Conservative Party and Margaret Thatcher. He became too famous mm. as an individual. We'll come back to this because I think mm. it's an important point in our industry. Um, it's what bedevils our in tr- industry to some extent. Anyway, so. Tim carved down a really with Gordon Rees. Gordon Rees yeah. was Maggie Thatcher's sort of political guru, the one who lowered her voice and looked after, you know, uh, how she looked and what she, what she said. And Tim got very involved as a personal advisor. And that's um, – but Sarcher's was a great, great yeah. business show. Manhattan Landing, the work for um, Israel, the pregnant man ad. I mean, all yes, yeah, this was all part of the folklore. Not that you see anything like that at Cannes anymore. Well, we're going to come on and talk about that. I'd love to I get I don't think the ad on. that BA did matches Manhattan Landing. Anyway. Well, well, oh, 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 well let, let's jump to so that. They won it. an pretty award pretty here this, yes. this week. Yes. I don't know, the outdoor ad. How, how, how
0: do you assess the state of creativity now
1: as you look? How, well, firstly, how many times have you been to Cannes? Uh, I would say, I don't know, it's about 15 or 20 times. And never, never used to come. We basically set ourselves the objective at WPP... <laughs> To, to win at Cannes, yeah. to win. And we had a run of, I think it was about five years. I think it started about mm. 2014. And when I left in 18, they flubbed it in 2019, and then they seemed to yeah. re- reassess the importance of it. Um, it's very different to what it was. I mean, it, it's certainly nowhere near what Roger Hatchwell envisioned. I think it was a bunch of French creatives getting having a glass of rosé on the... Uh, uh, on this, in the south of France in, in June. And I don't think if we were, you and I were trying to redesign or de, or set up mm. the equivalent of Cannes, that we would do it in June in the south of France. Yeah. I think we would probably pick an off-peak period, like, you know, sort of February or March or something, or maybe January, like rather, like Davos, and and find a place where... You know the, the rates were a slightly lower and and maybe you know a bit more isolated so that people couldn't do anything else. I mean the, the trouble here is that there's lots of other things to do in it to virtue. And in fact, I saw it's really interesting you asked me the question because I saw somebody today who it was her first time here, who worked for a, a UK company, a retailer, and I and I said you know what do you think of it? And she said well nobody looks at the work, and there's there that is true. I mean most people bugger off on. Thursday now. They don't stay for the awards on Friday except mm. the winners. Whereas before that was very much the very reverse. Much the we all stuck around. We wanted to see who won, etc. Um, so I think it's very different. It's, it's, to me, Can has become like CES. Yeah. And CES has become like Cannes. Um, and maybe the common coefficient of that is MediaLink. <laughs> uh, because CES was too technological. Yeah. So they wanted to be a bit sexier, so they, they called on on MediaLink, and then you know, can with Essential. Or Media MediaLink is not part of Essential anymore, but it's it's the same thing. But I think it's um, well, I'm gonna it's, I I'm gonna say it's past its sell by date. I I think I I think it's got to change. I think it's in what got, in what ways do you think? Well, it's I think changed? a number of people said to me today and yesterday and the day before that it's too much. Mm. Um, and it's become very superficial. So you know, it's speed dating, uh, which is you know good because it brings everybody together at the same point in time. Yeah. So it's a networking event. But no, you know, you lose sight of the event. It's rather like Davos in the sense that it used to be that we used to listen to the content, mm. to the panels and the speeches and the the initiatives. Um, I sort of feel that this is more – you know, there's a lot of people here don't have badges. You know, the price of badges has gone up so significantly. price of a hotel room is ridiculous. I heard last night that the pre-COVID agreements that the hotels had entered into, they're not prepared to stick by them. So you've got pricing and, dare I say, gouging um, on, on pricing. And I think, you know, funny way, can – and this is the trouble with all conferences – they're not in real time, so they're planned a year before. So this planning might have been right for a year ago, but it's not right for this point in time. Yeah. And some of the things going on here are probably downright embarrassing from a, you know, from an external point of right. view in terms of cost. Yeah. Um, and entertainment, and it and it's it almost comes down to you know whose my party is bigger than yours, <laughs> or whose party is the biggest, and. Um, So I think it's sort of lost a bit bit of its focus. Now, having said that, we'll come on to this. Technology is, there are two drivers of, I think, of our industry. One is geographical, a geographical driver, and the other is a technology driver. And obviously, technology is paramount. Mm -hmm. And you see the six big platforms represented here, the three western and the three eastern. And you see uh, Amazon and Apple and uh, Microsoft with... Big presences as well, uh, and of course you know Salesforce and Adobe and LG and Samsung and Shopify and Spotify and Oracle and uh, scads of others, but um, and Pinterest and Twitter and Snap and etc. It's very technologically driven, and I think it's lost the focus around creativity so, so we can get into that in a little bit
0: more well let's obviously uncensored cmo podcast with you know talking to an audience of cmos what should cmos be concerned about now as you know with your experience looking around the world well i think there are, you know, there are
1: there were three things that we um, bang on about and i had a meeting with a major global or two major global companies this afternoon before coming here and it permeates those conversations. I mean, obviously, AI is a focus, but just sort of, we'll come on to that as well. But we're abstracting that from that in a minute. I think agility, people talk about agility. Every CEO says their organization is agile, including agencies. And if you have to deal with them, you find out that they are. So agility is key. Taking back control is key as well. You know, after the great financial crisis, the the, the vogue thing was zero-based budgeting, which was nothing new. But you know, three G, Jorge Lehman and and his colleagues really sort of got people to focus on it, and that meant you know, de everything, starting from a base of zero and building up. It wasn't a new concept. I mean, it was it was messaged as being new, but it wasn't. I mean, when I was at business school fifty five years ago, we had it. We had it. Hal Janine at it and T used to to practice it's nothing new but what it did was it pushed a lot of stuff out of the client so it was outsourced so we have three models at media monks s4s operating brand we have the classic outsource model where agencies operate we have an embedded model where we put people into the client you know they have a they might have the client's t-shirt on but there are people uh, on our payroll and then you have the the in-house model which we're not frightened to do ourselves out of business. Most of the holding companies are terrified of losing. We think in-housing works in various situations, both media and creative. We were the subject of a Harvard Business School case study on the in-housing of Sprint. We went on to do T-Mobile as well after they took over Sprint. So I think you know, taking back control is really important interesting at the moment because there's this focus on short term results and short term performance which I think will continue you know the the, the idea of in-housing probably CFOs and chief procurement officers are saying no we don't want more headcount so outsource more but in time particularly driven by AI and AGI and blockchain and metaverse, which I think are the three technological yeah. you know, entities and, and uh, crypto, sort of fading a little bit into, more, more than a little bit into the background. But those three things, blockchain, meta, and AI, AGI are fundamental. And I think that will drive things more in-house. And I think that will become it. So take back control. So agility, take back control. And then the last point is first-party data. Mm. So when Google announced the deprecation of third-party caucus, although we still haven't got the final timetable and when Apple did their change in IDFA, that meant that clients who had been building third-party data platforms you know, had a, a a real problem. I mean it was first announced by Google, I remember the last thing before COVID in January of 2020 that I went to was a conference in Scandinavia and it Google had just had the second blog on deprecation of third party cookies. A lot of the clients there, although at that conference, a Google organized conference, although they were great fans of Google, otherwise they wouldn't have been there, they were somewhat irritated by the fact that there was a deprecation of third-party cookers because they are building third-party databases. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And so first-party data becomes really important. So you see the growth of the, the retailers' walled gardens as well, which is their answer yes. to the Amazonian um, surge. Um, so I think those three things, so you know, agility, Taking back control, than the first, party did.
0: now. Almost, almost reluctant to mention the word, because always seems to be our word, isn't there, or, or a theme at every can. But we must talk about AI, of course. Yes. How real a game changer do you think AI? Oh, I think is? it's real. And, it's, and where do you think? the impact I think it's
1: real. Is be? And there's, you know, when when people talk about AI or AGI. Um, there are two there are two sort of emotions that it engenders. One is wonder. I mean, isn't it incredible? And it's going to be doing incredible things. The other is fear. So I did a, a, a conversation with Auntie Scaramucci um, in London recently. And a woman came up to me with her daughter afterwards and said, my daughter works at one of the holding companies. So I won't say which one. And is she going to lose her job? And you know, I... I you know, she, she might, she might, I, she, uh, could be the answer, but I said, well, not if she learns to use it as a tool. Mm. So with that as background, you know, fear and wonder, or wonder and fear, because I mean, it is, it is as big as the web, it is as big as smartphones, I mean, it's uh, another industrial revolution, and it's fundamental. We see already five areas where AI, AGI is developing. Uh, the first is on um, productivity, Improvements on copywriting and visualization. So ads that took two weeks to do, yeah. take two hours. So huge huge savings, huge improvements in productivity. So much so that we've, we've altered our go-to-market from faster, better, cheaper to faster, better, cheaper, and now, now, uh, sorry, and more, and, and now being instantaneous implementation. But more means we can produce more assets and be more effective. So I would say that's the first thing, so visualising, copyright, and I should say I should yeah. say, one interesting thing is the Unreal Engine, which is Epic Games' Fortnite technology, which we had yeah. u- utilised extensively, built a studio in, in New Delhi, which means that we could shoot any commercial anywhere in the world from New Delhi. Wow. You know, if you want to do Rio de Janeiro, we might have to have Brazilian or Portuguese-speaking actors in in India, but essentially what's really interesting about this... The AI surge is the Unreal Engine also almost did the same thing. You know, you don't have to go to six locations and spend three months producing the the, the most beautiful film. Uh, You can do it uh, where you work. But anyway, so that's the number
0: one. I think the obvious question, I think, in people's minds with that is what happens to originality and, and creativity and how do you avoid basically everyone creating the same...
1: Well no uh, no but you could, you can do it you can do it to such a heightened degree. So for Netflix, which I think is the model, it's effectively it's a data driven model where you where you the data determines the creative and you pump it out through digital media, you look at the results and then you refine the product. Yep. If it doesn't work, you refine it or you alter it. So for Netflix historically we might produce one point six million, with the Nanarcos example one point six million theoretically. Different creative executions, you could now do five million, right? Mm-hmm. So, what was interesting about the conversation we had this afternoon was that you know there were 12 product managers global sitting around, and, and what it meant was that the production period gets concertined down to literally hours, which gives them more time, they produce more assets, which means that they have to be more selective in what they use, and it has to be more iterative. So I think it's all to the good. Yeah. I mean, it, it may be that clients, you know, we've had one or two clients who've already said to us they want productivity savings or to share the productivity savings with us. Um, but what it does is it enables it's really interesting, it enables the people to focus on the content and how effective the content is rather than the production of the content. So you've shut down that period and it's expanded the amount. So it's a bit like, you know, when you say about I, I will destroy the mundane jobs and give people more time to do the brain jobs or the whatever, however you describe it. So that's the first area. The second area is hyper-personalization at scale. So we can do on a super scale, hence the more. The third is media planning and buying. And I think that, you know, the best way of putting it is, you know, you wouldn't, what would you prefer to do? Use a 25-year-old media planner or buyer or an algorithm? And certainly in the digital space, which is now two thirds of client budgets. And the media market's 900 billion. Probably in digital media is about 600, 650. And uh, it's going to be 75% of client budgets by 2025, according to the forecasters. So I think the holding companies are in for a very rude shock on this. I mean, there is no way that if they employ 350, 400,000 people, Currently, to distribute media planning and buying is not going to be the case in two years. Uh, that that is the situation. And is that because of their overhead they're carrying? To uh, well, you, there's a, no need for it. Mm. And again, I say, you know, the algorithm will will prove it. I and mean, you'll need agencies to validate. You no, know, you wouldn't give your media budget to Rupert Murdoch and say invest it without validation. No, no insult intended to Rupert Murdoch, but there would be bias there. So you need somebody as a you know a countervailing party or, or as a reseller to validate yep. what, what's going on. I also think it means that the platforms are going to get closer to the clients. So the six, I would come on to. I think or I also think that it means that the six big platforms are going to become even more significant. You know they're being checked by the regulator from acquisition, doing acquisitions. You know, Giphy and Activision with Microsoft. So six platforms, three west, three east, plus. Microsoft and Apple, Salesforce, et cetera, they're going to become NVIDIA, obviously, have a monopoly position in the picks and shovels for AI. I think they are going to become even more important. So if you thought they were big, now stand by. And, and the regulator is forcing them. Their research budgets are huge. Their research budget as a percentage of their revenues are huge, and in an absolute sense are huge. So they will be investing more in organic development, AI, AGI gives them. Yep. So media planning and buying. Yep. The fourth area is use of AI as a super tool, i.e. You know, improving our processes, improving, client, improving clients' processes. And the fifth area, which I think is the most interesting, is knowledge. So and it comes back to what I said before about egos and industry. You know, Good people are difficult to manage, um, which is a dangerous thing to say because average people then think to be good they have to be difficult. So you defeat your purpose. But the real jewels in our industry are those people who are good and good at building their brand if it's a multi-branded model, ours is a unitary model that are good at participating in that, but engage other people that are, who are good individually and make great decisions and make great progress but they bring in the team. Those people are very rare. Mm-hmm. Right, you know, you walk down the Quasette, You know, I'm still a shareholder in WPP, and what do I see? I see WPP, Group M, and Ogilvy. Makes no sense, right? What's the point? I mean, if you need more space, you're trying to create one firm. And even publicists, you know, talk about the power of one. You walk into their reception and you see 47 brands. Yeah. So I, I think. Um, our industry is bedevilled by, by that problem uh, that the individual almost becomes more powerful than the, um, the entity and there's a great parallel uh, with the fashion industry there was a the tremendous documentary recently I think it was on BBC iPlayer about Arnaud and Gucci and Pino and about Tom Ford and Alexander McQueen etc. and, and the, the lesson from the film was it's a great film everybody should watch it Particularly in our industry, was that the creative directors weren't the most important people. It was the brand. The brand that always won in the end. And Arnaud understands that big time. Yeah. He's built the biggest company in Europe, over half a trillion dollars of market value. was the world's richest man. And, and I, yeah. think, I think Elon Musk has edged ahead <laughs> again, but, but, but um, as built by building, by understanding that the brand's. really important. I mean the people are really important, but the brands is where the strength and there's a parallel to our industry. So getting people and going back to the knowledge factor around AI, AI will enable us to enfranchise everybody inside the organization with the power of knowledge. So what you what was happening now is that people protect their areas because they control the knowledge. At least in theory, AI will enable Everybody you know, like we have yeah. eight thousand seven hundred people and I often say I wish you know, everyone knew what the other eight thousand six hundred and ninety nine <laughs> knew and the guy who resigned from Google said he was re- resigning he said it was an existential threat because the bots you know he used ten thousand bots would know every bot would know what every other bot knew instantly yeah right and in a way <laughs> I will get us to a situation not quite as perfect as that but where If we give people open access and if the data that is ingested is good data and and gets more and better and better, that will give knowledge to everybody in the organisation. So the thing that drives me nuts, which is a question I always like to ask people, what drives you nuts about the business or the brand you're running or whatever it happens to be, is when somebody in our organisation says, I didn't know that we had done that or... So and so have been involved in that, or we were in this geography, or we had this capability,
0: or whatever. So, with all this in mind, uh, what's your advice to marketing teams? What kind of skill set do they need to, you know, be able to handle this?
1: Well, you know, if you think about AI, the, the, the oil of AI is data, and you know, going back to the agility, you know, take back control, first party data uh, mantra clearly control of data, first party data, for deprecation reasons, IDFA reasons as well, becomes critically important. And you know, I would advise every client to look at their agreement with their media agency as to who controls the data. Because, because many media agencies control the data, and that's the way they exert control yep. over the client, and they prevent change. In an AI world, At the very least, everybody should be experimenting now. You should break off a brand, preferably give it to us to work on. Uh, You break off a brand and start to experiment with the productivity around copywriting and visualization, around hyper-personalization. You've got nothing to lose, and you should do it quickly. You don't have to turn the whole organization upside down by doing it, but break off a bit and, and, and do it. So I think those are the skills. So the data skill is going to be absolutely critical because the real, the engine oil, the oil that lubricates all this is going to be um, the personalized data. The first person data um, you know, approved by consumers, And no doubt, we'll get into that. In our pre-prep meeting, we talked about a little bit about that issue. But I think that's the core skill. And then it's going to be about understanding, well, agility is really important, so managing an organisation extremely flexibly and responsibly. I mean, every conversation I have with somebody in the marketing fashion doesn't have to be the CMO or the CSO or the CIO. um, complains about the fact that um, they don't move fast enough, they don't have enough control, and that the first-party data assets are very difficult to bring together. So that latter point is going to become absolutely critical. Oh, makes it. so much sense! Yeah. Hugely,
0: hugely important. Um, well, anyway, I, I thought I'd experiment with AI, obviously, yes. with this conversation. So I asked it. Uh, I asked it a few questions. Which one
1: did you ask? Was it uh, ChatGPT?
0: Actually, okay, yeah, right. ChatGPT. So um, I said, "Give me some questions for Sir Martin Sorrell." Yeah. Uh, the first one I thought said is. He's- They said, who? Who? Exactly. (laughs) Remind me. Um, Anyway, first one. Uh, What's the best question for Sir Martin Sorrell were you to interview you, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, I I think this is a bit obvious, and you may have already answered this, so they they get more interesting as they go along. Um, The biggest disruption to our industry in the next 10 years. So i tell you what, I'll I'll put a twist on it. You can't say AI. So so beyond AI, biggest disruption to our business.
1: So There are two. I, yeah. I wouldn't say just one, and one is geographical, so fragmentation. Mm-hmm. Different power bases, you know, the rise of Latin America, the rise of the Middle East, uh, the rise of India, and in Asian. Asian context, not just India, Vietnam, and Indonesia, and Thailand, and Philippines, and Malaysia, and Singapore. That doesn't mean old Asia, meaning Japan, and Australia, and New Zealand, are not going to continue to be important, but the big question in Asia is China. You know, Do you extend your business in China? If you have a big share, and I define big as, you know, China is 18 trillion out of 100 trillion GDP, so logically it should be around 20%. If you have 20%, maybe you stick because yep. you're worried about Taiwan supply chains, you know, Apple and Tesla are going to Mexico, et cetera, for supply chains. If you're, you know, like, I think Unilever has 7% of its revenue in China, uh, you know, Procter went into China and Unilever went to India, so you want to up your, the ante in China, so you, we have a small business in a very good business. Um, as my mother said, you know good things come in little packages. and um, you know our Chinese business is very strong, but we have to be bigger. and and Chinese brands are being very expansive at the minute. and then outbound Chinese, what people don't understand is the platforms, in many cases they're second so for alphabet, for Amazon, for meta, their second biggest profit unit is outbound Chinese. So these are Chinese firms that are building their businesses. Yeah. Internationally, So geographical fragmentation and the outlook for Europe, I hate to be depressing in in, in France, but here goes. I think France, Germany, Italy, Spain, and the UK are going to have... You know, I, talking to clients, it tends to be... It's difficult to get growth in those markets, so we're very focused on efficient cost. So one thing is changing... So it used to be globalization. You can say it's deglobalization if you want, but it's certainly fragmentation. So picking your battlegrounds, before you didn't matter where you were, as long as the demographics were fine, yeah. free trade, and always operated to help you. Now there are barriers. You know, make America great again. You know, nearshoring, mm. onshoring, whatever. I mean, it makes it much more difficult. So that's one thing. And The second thing, and AI comes into this, um, is because GDP growth is going to be lower than it was and interest rates and inflation higher than they were, and interest rates will be higher for longer, I think clients are going to find growth very difficult and margins will come under pressure. And as a result, that they're going to be looking for efficiencies, and those efficiencies will be driven by technology, not just AI, yeah. but yeah. blockchain Techn- and uh, metaverse too. Next question I asked, yeah.
0: uh, ChatGPT. Give me the most surprising question for Sir Martin. Now, the most surprising question, according to ChatGBT, was if you could go back in time, what advice would you give yourself?
1: You know, when you look back on things, if you spotted something, you you never do, you never, this is not a new thought, because Bill Gates has said this, I think, on many occasions, you, you never jump in. I mean, you may spot a change, but you never execute as quickly or as expansively as you should do. So you know, if I think back to WPP in 1997, I was interviewed by the Harvard Business Review. I waxed lyrical about the importance of the internet and you know, we really didn't go as fast as we should have done. I think when I exited uh, about 40% of WPP's revenues, we calculated and we used to look at it every, every quarter and every year, every half year and every, every year. Um, it was around 40%. And you know, I don't think we went fast enough. I mean, with the benefit of 2020 yeah. 20 hindsight. So I would say the mistakes you make um, are not, if you spot trends, uh, is to not, particularly if you have analog businesses or you have established businesses, so there's a resistance to change anyway. You never go fast enough so that's and what's the, so, so to flip by his head what I is mean, the, 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 yeah
0: ask me what, what is the secret to going fast So if the first step is acknowledging... Well,
1: the secret to going faster, to go faster, to go faster is faster. not having any blockages in the system and you know unfortunately analog businesses have blockages you know you have the you have an analog thing that's producing the profit you remember the early days of the internet you know should you build something separately should you make it part of the core and most people I think Thought you'd keep it separate uh, because the core reacts. You know, the other thing is, you know, performance is always based on short term. Mm. I mean, the, at the moment, I mean, the other thing that's happening at the moment is because the economy is under pressure, because GDP growth is less and inflation and putting it under pressure as well. And, you know, people are very focused on short term results. So going that lower down the funnel is really activation and performance is super important. And I hear a lot, particularly of new CEOs coming in or being promoted, saying to CMOs, you know, what the hell are we doing with this upper funnel stuff? You know, which is anathema here, because, you know, people want to build big brand campaigns. Um, But it doesn't mean that you can't build big ideas around short-term performance. And I think, like it or not, particularly in 23 and 24... And maybe even beyond that, you know, after the U.S. presidential election in '24, I think activation and performance is going to become even more important. Again, anathema here because yeah. people are looking for big, you know, Manhattan landing rather than that poster ad. I think probably yeah. would be the, the the thing. So, is, it, is it, there it's a risk of being over an over reliance? Oh, yeah, there's always a risk of, risk of it, but look, it's a fact of life. And you know, the average life of a CEO is probably it's getting shorter. And it's probably maybe four or five years. The average life of a company I think in the S&P 500 or the FTSE is like 12 years or 13 years. I think McKinsey had a statistic for that yeah. a little while ago. So the answer is attention spans consumers are getting shorter. You know, Facebook tells us Italy a few years ago that the average Italian woman spends two seconds on a post. Our response is to create a two second ad, right? It's not to, a fifteen-second TV ad. Yeah. Um, so I think you have to acclimatise, and I, I think life has to become much more shorter. It's much more volatile. When my dad said to me, you know, build, a brand, he believed in a long-term brand building. Again, it's anathema to say this, but I'll say it. I'm not sure that that's as relevant today as it was historically. So attention spans are shifting, mm-hmm. are shortening. Attention is shifting all the time. We're being bombarded. And the volatility in the environment geographically and technologically is so violent that it induces huge changes. You know, look, uh, you know, NVIDIA goes from you know, half a trillion or whatever it was to a trillion on thematics, right? Yeah. I mean, this is on a belief. I mean, the, the valuation multiple looks ex- extraordinary. But, you know, or Tesla, another good example. Yeah? Right? I mean, the valuation on Tesla, Despite all the bumps, it continues to, to defy gravity or normal gravity. So I think we live in a very different world where you know, private, the private equity model is probably the best model because what's their time frame, four or five years? It is usually, yeah. Right? yeah. So so, exact, so really good example, and I won't say what it was. This afternoon I heard that a digital company had run into a major Me Too problem. It is owned by a private equity company. Okay, um, nobody knows it. It was written up in the in the press today. Uh, they won't say where and when, but it was written up, and it didn't mention at all that the ownership of that company is by one of the major private equity companies, uh, which is really interesting. Because if it had happened, you know, think about anheuser Bush, yeah, right, and yeah, Bud yeah. Light, nanosecond, boom, it'd be everywhere, right? Yeah, this. It was written up in a major uh, European newspaper, one country in Europe, and it hasn't seen the light of day yet. Maybe it will. Mm. Maybe as a result of this podcast it will. (laughs) But but it's really interesting, you know, private equity is insulated. and When you say that to the private equity people, they say, no, 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 Mm. but it is. Because they're not in the public gaze. And yeah, so it's real. That's a real I, I briefly
0: worked in Broderick's, and I remember the the owner saying it's called private for a reason, <laughs> and we we'll want to keep well, it that way.
1: Yeah, right. you know, yeah it, it's like you targets. know, I mean, WPP sold control of Cantar, and Bain Capital. You know from what we can see from the published data on the Cantar website, is doing much much better. And I, you know, I, I look at that and i am particularly irritated by it because you know, why didn't we manage when we owned Cantar? I thought it was a bloody good idea to own it and to have it as part but we didn't manage to integrate it or run it as well as Bain capital and maybe doing it in the private lens that you know clearly there was a big cost structural issue in France and Germany Italy and Spain and obviously it's more difficult to do restructuring in those markets as mm. the tech companies have found out recently but in a private in the private atmosphere it's much easier to do yeah. than if you've got you know yeah. a BBC or, or 100% or, everybody else breathing down your neck. So the next question asked,
0: uh, ChatGPT, was give me the most controversial question for you. Now, this is where it gets interesting because it responded to say, when asking a controversial question, Sir Martin, you should make it thought-provoking but respectful. (laughs) (laughs) It appears ChatGPT is even giving advice on how to deliver a question. Um, But but what it came up with, what are the ethical considerations when looking at how advertising uses our personal data? Yeah, listen,
1: I think... It's not an easy answer to that. But I think as long as the consumer knows what he or she is signing up for, it's, it, it's fine. But, you know, we are bedevilled by, you know, when you sign up, for, try to sign up for a website, you know, you, you, the agreement is like 16 pages long. And you, have, you, have you ever read it? Have you ever read it? Uh, no, no. I, I'm a bit, no, no, no I mean, it's extremely tiresome. And I actually came past, came into contact with a third-party data company that we were looking at many, many years ago. And I didn't realise that I'd signed up on it was on American Express actually mm-hmm. that I'd signed up for what they they were using the, the data for. But I think really, and you know I can remember going back, we had Siegel and Gale as part of uh, WPP at some point in time. I still think it still is anyway. But what they did was they simplified the language for applying for a passport. So the and the language, you know, the immigration form. And they simplified the language, and it's exactly the same. I mean, it was complex, and you had to have a PhD to figure it out. What you do is you simplify it, and I think as long as the consumer knows, and maybe you know, the option give the option to the consumer to control the data yeah. that he or she has, you know, which he or she could sell if they wanted to. So as long as they know and they're conscious of it, that's fine. But if they don't know, what they're signing up for—that's a problem. Mm. So I think simplifying the execution
0: is critically important. So next question I attempted: mm-hmm. Give me a question you've never been asked. Now I think you've had been asked this, but anyway, we'll, we'll go with this. What's the decision you've made in your career that you most regret making?
1: Yeah, well, I—you I, know—I've been asked that. It's, it's always the answer is 89 Ogilvy deal, convertible preferred stock. It was a 7.6 percent. Net coupon, uh, which you couldn't deduct for tax, so basically it cost you double that. Mm. That time, thirteen percent or so, and it made us too highly levered. You know, we, with Thompson, we did half shares, half cash, and then we sold off the Japanese property for uh, virtually you know, half of the purchase price. And the incumbent <coughs> management, and and actually it was Morgan Stanley, was the defending bank, never twig that, they valued it at 30 million, we sold it for 205 million, really some million, yeah, yeah. But with Ogilvy, we did half, we did half uh, debt and a half convertible preferred, and I forgot that you know, in a, in a bear market, uh, uh, a convertible preferred is not equity, it's debt. Mm. So I think that was the biggest mistake. And what's the implication of that mistake on you? Well, the implication was, you know, we ran into difficulties in the early 90s, 91, 92 recession. Yeah. And we had to restructure the company. We had to do debt, two debt restructurings. So in 1990, we focused on organic growth and grew the business and did very well. And then in 2000, we merged with WaNA, uh, which is really a takeover of WaNA, And then Gray in 2004. And no, I mean, it was, it was fi- fine in the end, but it was a pretty fraught it was a yeah. mistake. Yeah, um, talked a lot about WPP, obviously,
0: yeah. and hugely successful. Um, just one question on that, I'd love to ask you about S four. Is what was the secret to that growth over so many years? Become the biggest holding.
1: Well, we had, you know, we had, uh, we had, uh, phases. I mean, we had the initial growth phase from eighty seven to to uh, or eighty five to eighty nine. You know, JWT in eighty seven, Ogilvy in eighty nine. The hiccup, the hiccup yeah. or more, than the hiccup. You know, the heart spasm um, in in uh, the 90s, uh, organic growth focus through the 90s. I think we we did cotton on to the the web fairly early, but we didn't go hard enough. Grey was a great deal that, that worked out extremely well. Um, we did um, you know the the Cantar deal with the benefit now of anniversary hindsight we didn't manage it as well as we we should have done. But you know you see that. With the package goods companies, you know, Nestle sold off control of their, some of their ice cream businesses, Unilever their mm-hmm. tea businesses, and the private equity companies that bought them, PIA, I think, for for the ice cream business at Nestle, and CVC for the tea business. They all seem to be doing extremely well in private equity hands. So it's about so, sort of sort of focus. So we went through phases there. So you know, there wasn't one yeah. consistent pattern to it. Um, and s is the same, you know, we had a, uh, we've had a, a phase of very strong growth through mergers as we call them, uh, because it'd be 50-50 dollars in terms of cash and equity. And, and now we're in a consolidation phase. So, so you, you have different phases. I don't know the secret of success. I mean, the, the WPP model is a, is a multi-branded model. I think that's not fit for purpose anymore. My own view is they should break WPP up, because WPP is now valued at 12 billion dollars. Publicis and Omnicom are valued at 19 billion each and IPG is valued at 15. It doesn't make any sense at all. I and mean, People say, well, wp has got more debt but they've got 1.4 billion sitting in Cantar in their minority interest in Cantar, on the basis of the valuations that people can, can impute and then about another like, 400 million in FSG, the, the PR company that they've sort of spun off a bit. So you've got sort of 2 billion that would Take care of the debt. Yeah. Uh, so it makes no sense to me, and uh, and I think you, you, you know, I think they're probably too fat and happy. <laughs> well, very, one question I want ask Being a bit you. naughty, but they're probably too fat and happy.
0: Uh, obviously, huge success, you know, uh, creating the biggest, you know, holding company in the world. What motivates you to start again and build? I don't, I, I don't plan to play
1: golf, or I don't. Like to play golf. I did work. For, <laughs> you don't like being bored. I did work for Mark McCormack, and I did work, you know, for Arnold Palmer and Gary Player and Jack Nicklaus yeah. and Arnold, and Tony Jacklin and Peter Oosterhouse and Clive Clark and all, people like that. Um, so I saw golf at first hand, and I don't want to play golf. It's an go. old man's game. I prefer to play cricket. As, so that, as we started out, so yeah, yeah. Although you know, it's not a great thing to say having lost by two wickets yesterday. That's a bit galling. Ah. Oh.
0: Well, I've, I've got a few quick fire questions. Yeah. I thought it'd be, it'd be fun to, to hit you with some unusual, different questions as well. Okay. Um, I've just finished watching Succession. It was mm. incredible. Uh, it appears to be based fairly closely on the, uh, on the Murdoch Empire. Mm. How close to real life do you
1: think it is? I think it's pretty close. I mean, I, I remember the, the the woman who. Uh, responsible for the scripts you know there's a big team and she described on Radio 4 how they all get together for 30 days and (coughs) sit in a room and bounce ideas off one another and she said you know the fact that they don't you say they say they don't watch it is indicative of how close to near to the knuckle it is I I, I found the actors who played uh, Ronan and Shiv and whatever I I because I know a little bit, not very well, but I know Lachlan, know James, know Rupert uh, and Elizabeth. Um, You know, it didn't strike me. Brian Cox doesn't strike me, (laughs) being (laughs) Rupert. And, you know, I don't think the the, the three three kids, uh, the three Murdoch kids. um, So I think there's probably, there was a dissonance there. Having said that, the plot, you know, I thought... I wasn't so keen on series one, two, and three, but I thought four was pretty, pretty good. Yeah, it was, good. It was uh, pretty good man. And the final, I mean, the final one is the final episode is set up for a sequel, but they tell us, it's not, I, "I would bet it'll come back." Oh, of course it will. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. They always say that, don't they? Just to keep you watching. Um, tell me something you've never told anybody else.
1: I was not. I told you. You, you... you did
0: tell me this morning, by the way. Yeah, but we'll pretend that didn't happen.
1: Oh uh, well, okay. So, so, uh, well, I was talking about. I was in Amsterdam. Um, and somebody asked me, one of the monks, I saw the monks in, the media monks in Amsterdam and Hilversum. We have about 750 that sit there, in Amsterdam and Hilversum. And um, one of the questions they asked me is, you know, what what does nobody do? So I wear, I wear what is, um, I'm Jewish and I wear a titsis, right? Um, and titsis has fringes. I mean, the central prayers say you should have. Uh, fringes on the corner of all your garments so instead of having a fringe on the corner of every one of our garments we have a, a garment we wear underneath which have fringes, fringes on them so I wear a titsa which happens be my dad's titsu so um, that's sort of so I'm not orthodox you know I'm probably a three day a year yeah. Jew which means Rosh Hashanah <laughs> and Yom, Yom Kippur but having said that I, I do do that so that's a sort of that's something that hasn't been publicised until now.
0: Yes, there you go. We're, we're okay. exclusive on this, on this podcast. Um, if you were to, and um, this might be a bit close to what you are doing, <laughs> but if you were to build a fantasy uh, agency, like, like a fantasy football team where you could pick full-service agency, you could build it from scratch, money's no object, mm. who, who would you,
1: mm. how would you put it together? Well, I'd have, uh, sort of have elements of it. Um, You know, if I look at our competition, you know, I always come back to Accenture. I don't get the feeling that Accenture are as enthusiastic as they were about the area that we're in. Mm. You know, when I say we're the industry, is in digital... I mean, it it appears to be about... You know, Accenture is, what, I think, 60 billion of revenue? It's huge. 800,000 people. And I think digital communications or the digital area that we compete with them is probably, I don't know, seven or eight billion of it. So it's it's pretty big. But I don't get the impression that they're as focused on it because, you know, if you have a $60 billion beast, um, you know, you to feed that beast, you have to have big contracts, not the sort of contracts that we compete for, which are, you know, chump change in relation to what they need to feed their beast. So, so one of the answers would be, you know, you'd have that, digital piece, you know, what is called um, Droga 5 or Song or whatever they call it now. I think um, David Droga said everybody has to change their name for Song except (laughs) Droga 5 and maybe (laughs) the the monkeys in Australia as well. Um, So that would be one part of it. I would say there there are bits inside WPP that I think are really interesting like AKQA and Mm -hmm. maybe a bit of VML but but more AKQA, I think, than VML, to be fair. And then inside IPG, there were there were bits RGA and Huge. They're not as good as they were, from what we hear. And Widen would be another one, right? Yeah. Which are the super super good bits. And then, you know, there are specialists. Yeah, you know, Oliver, that would be one, you know, which competes on the on the the uh, content side. Jellyfish high volume, yeah. low profitability. I mean Brandtech couldn't get that deal done, they couldn't raise the money for it, so they merged on the basis yep. of equity just recently. It took them a long time to do that. So you've got sort of the consultant piece, you've got bits of the holding companies, the digital, the, you know, the, the essence media business is a really good media business. I, I don't think merging it with Mediacom made it better. Probably it, it probably made Mediacom better, but not so much essence. Um, so there are bits of the holding companies. And not, uh, you know, Publicis sapient, you know, that yep. obviously has been helpful to, to them. And then there are sort of specialists. So if money was no object, you would, and then the, the other area adjacent to Accenture would be companies like Globant, you know, which we had. So when I was at WPP, we bought 20% of Globant at $11 a share and went public at 22. It's They sold it, they sold it. It broke my heart when they they sold it for, I think it was about 80. It got to 350. It's now about 180. It's now 180 with the market coming back. But, I mean, it's gone from 11 to 180 even today. Uh, Super business. And EPAM, Indava... ThoughtWorks, you know, those sorts of businesses are really interesting. No,
0: fascinating. Look, we've, we've just run out of time, but right. Sir Martin, thank you so much thank for you, that. You've been really Thank you, John. You've been absolutely splendid. Thank you And uh, thank you, everyone, Hope, everyone, for, hope for everybody, for everybody
1: us. else thought so too. Yes, indeed. <laughs>
0: <laughs> thank you, audience, as well. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Sir Martin Sorrell and found plenty in there to get your head around. If you'd like to get more content like that, then please do hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. If you're watching, go over to YouTube and hit subscribe there as well. If you'd like to follow me, I'm John at Uncensored CMO, or you can find me on LinkedIn under John Evans. It's been a pleasure to have you with me. I'll see you next time.